but this dissimulation does not depend on a faulty understanding so much as it expresses the capitalist field of imminence, the apparent objective movement where the lower or subordinate form is no less necessary than the other, it is necessary for money to play on both boards, and where no integration of the dominated classes could occur without the shadow of this unapplied principle of convertibility which is enough, however, to ensure that the desire of the most disadvantaged creature will invest with all its strength, irrespective of any economic understanding or lack of it, the capitalist social field as a whole. Flows, who doesn't desire flows, and relationships between flows, and breaks in flows, all of which capitalism was able to mobilize and break under these hitherto unknown conditions of money. While it is true that capitalism is industrial in its essence or mode of production, it functions only as merchant capitalism. While it is true that it is filiative industrial capital in its essence, it functions only through its alliance with commercial and financial capital. In a sense, it is the bank that controls the whole system and the investment of desire. One of Keynes's contributions was the reintroduction of desire into the problem of money, it is this that must be subjected to the requirements of Marxist analysis. That is why it is unfortunate that Marxist economists too often dwell on considerations concerning the mode of production, and on the theory of money as the general equivalent as found in the first section of capital, without attaching enough importance to banking practice, to financial operations, and to the specific circulation of credit money which would be the meaning of a return to Marx, to the Marxist theory of money. Let us return to the dualism of money, to the two boards, the two inscriptions, the one going into the account of the wage earner, the other into the balance sheet of the enterprise. Measuring the two orders of magnitude in terms of the same analytical unit is a pure fiction, a cosmic swindle, as if one were to measure intergalactic or intraatomic distances in meters and centimeters. There is no common measure between the value of the enterprises and that of the labor capacity of wage earners. That is why the falling tendency has no conclusion. A quotient of differentials is indeed calculable if it is a matter of the limit of variation of the production flows from the viewpoint of a full output, but it is not calculable if it is a matter of the production flow and the labor flow on which surplus value depends. Thus the difference is not cancelled in the relationship that constitutes it as a difference in nature, the tendency has no end, it has no exterior limit that it could reach or even approximate. The tendency's only limit is internal, and it is continually going beyond it, but by displacing this limit that is, by reconstituting it, by rediscovering it as an internal limit to be surpassed again by means of a displacement, thus the continuity of the capitalist process engenders itself in this break of a break that is always displaced, in this unity of the skis and the flow. In this respect already the field of social imminence, as revealed under the withdrawal and the transformation of the earth state, is continually expanding, and acquires a consistency entirely its own, which shows the manner in which capitalism for its part was able to interpret the general principle according to which things work well only providing they break down, crises being the means imminent to the capitalist mode of production. If capitalism is the exterior limit of all societies, this is because capitalism for its part has no exterior limit, but only an interior limit that is capital itself and that it does not encounter, but reproduces by always displacing it. Jean Joseph rigorously analyzes the mathematical phenomenon of the curve without a tangent, 
and the direction it is apt to take in economy as well as linguistics, if the movement does not tend toward any limit, if the quotient of differentials is not calculable, the present no longer has any meaning. The quotient of differentials is not resolved, the differences no longer cancel one another in their relationship. No limit opposes the break, law bridger, or the breaking of this break. The tendency finds no end, the thing in motion never quite reaches what the immediate future has in store for it, it is endlessly delayed by accidents and deviations. Such is the complex notion of a continuity within the absolute break 74. In the expanded imminence of the system, the limit tends to reconstitute in its displacement the thing it tended to diminish in its primitive emplacement. Now this movement of displacement belongs essentially to the deterritorialization of capitalism. As Samir Amin has shown, the process of deterritorialization here goes from the center to the periphery, that is, from the developed countries to the underdeveloped countries, which do not constitute a separate world, but rather an essential component of the worldwide capitalist machine. It must be added, however, that the center itself has its organized enclaves of underdevelopment, its reservations, and its ghettos as interior peripheries. Pierre Moussa has defined the United States as a fragment of the third world that has succeeded and has preserved its immense zones of underdevelopment. And if it is true that the tendency to a falling rate of profit or to its equalization asserts itself at least partially at the center, carrying the economy toward the most progressive and the most automated sectors, a veritable development of underdevelopment on the periphery ensures a rise in the rate of surplus value, in the form of an increasing exploitation of the peripheral proletariat in relation to that of the center. For it would be a great error to think that exports from the periphery originate primarily in traditional sectors or archaic territorialities, on the contrary, they come from modern industries and plantations that generate an immense surplus value, to a point where it is no longer the developed countries that supply the underdeveloped countries with capital, but quite the opposite. So true is it that primitive accumulation is not produced just once at the dawn of capitalism, but is continually reproducing itself. Capitalism exports filiative capital. At the same time as capitalist deterritorialization is developing from the center to the periphery, the decoding of flows on the periphery develops by means of a disarticulation that ensures the ruin of traditional sectors, the development of extravert economic circuits, a specific hypertrophy of the tertiary sector, and an extreme inequality in the different areas of productivity and in incomes. Point seventy-five. Each passage of a flux is a deterritorialization, and each displaced limit, a decoding. Capitalism schizophrenizes more and more on the periphery. It will be said that, even so, at the center the falling tendency retains its restricted sense, i.e., the relative diminution of surplus value in relation to total capital a diminution that is ensured by the development of productivity, automation, and constant capital. This problem was raised again recently by Maurice Clavel in a series of decisive and willfully incompetent questions that is, questions addressed to Marxist economists by someone who doesn't quite understand how one can maintain human surplus value as the basis for capitalist production, while recognizing that machines too work or produce value, that they have always worked, and that they work more and more in proportion to man, who thus ceases to be a constituent part of the production process, in order to become adjacent to this process. Point 76 Hence there is a machinic surplus value produced by constant capital, 
which develops along with automation and productivity, and which cannot be explained by factors that counteract the falling tendency the increasing intensity of the exploitation of human labor, the diminution of the price of the elements of constant capital, etc. Since, on the contrary, these factors depend on it. It seems to us, with the same indispensable incompetence, that these problems can only be viewed under the conditions of the transformation of the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux. In defining pre-capitalist regimes by a surplus value of code, and capitalism by a generalized decoding that converted the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux, we were presenting things in a summary fashion, we were still acting as though the matter were settled once and for all, at the dawn of a capitalism that had lost all code value. This is not the case, however. On the one hand, codes continue to exist even as an archaism but they assume a function that is perfectly contemporary and adapted to the situation within personified capital, the capitalist, the worker, the merchant, the banker. But on the other hand, and more profoundly, every technical machine presupposes flows of a particular type, flows of code that are both interior and exterior to the machine, forming the elements of a technology and even a science. It is these flows of code that find themselves encasted, coded, or overcoded in the pre-capitalist societies in such a way that they never achieve any independence, the blacksmith, the astronomer. But the decoding of flows in capitalism has freed, deterritorialized, and decoded the flows of code just as it has the others to such a degree that the automatic machine has always increasingly internalized them in its body or its structure as a field of forces, while depending on a science and a technology, on a so-called intellectual labor distinct from the manual labor of the worker, the evolution of the technical object. In this sense, it is not machines that have created capitalism, but capitalism that creates machines, and that is constantly introducing breaks and cleavages through which it revolutionizes its technical modes of production. But several correctives must be introduced in this regard. These breaks and cleavages take time, and their extension is very wide-ranging. By no means does the diachronic capitalist machine allow itself to be revolutionized by one or more of its synchronous technical machines, and by no means does it confer on its scientists and its technicians an independence that was unknown in the previous regimes. Doubtless it can let a certain number of scientists mathematicians, for example schizophrenize in their corner, and it can allow the passage of socially decoded flows of code that these scientists organize into axiomatics of research that is said to be basic. But the true axiomatic is elsewhere. Leave the scientists alone to a certain point, let them create their own axiomatic, but when the time comes for serious things. For example, non-determinist physics, with its corpuscular flows, will have to be brought into line with determinism. The true axiomatic is that of the social machine itself, which takes the place of the old codings and organizes all the decoded flows, including the flows of scientific and technical code, for the benefit of the capitalist system and in the service of its ends. That is why it has often been remarked that the Industrial Revolution combined an elevated rate of technical progress with the maintenance of a great quantity of obsolescent equipment, along with a great suspicion concerning machines and science. An innovation is adopted only from the perspective of the rate of profit its investment will offer by the lowering of production costs, without this prospect, the capitalist will keep the existing equipment, 
and stand ready to make a parallel investment in equipment in another area. Point 77. Thus the importance of human surplus value remains decisive, even at the center and in highly industrialized sectors. What determines the lowering of costs and the elevation of the rate of profit through machinic surplus value is not innovation itself, whose value is no more measurable than that of human surplus value. It is not even the profitability of the new technique considered in isolation, but its effect on the overall profitability of the firm in its relationships with the market and with commercial and financial capital. This implies diachronic encounters and countersectings such as one already sees for example in the early part of the 19th century, between the steam engine and textile machines or techniques for the production of iron. In general, the introduction of innovations always tends to be delayed beyond the time scientifically necessary, until the moment when the market forecasts justify their exploitation on a large scale. Here again, Alliance Capital exerts a strong selective pressure on machinic innovations within industrial capital. In brief, there where the flows are decoded, the specific flows of code that have taken a technical and scientific form are subjected to a properly social axiomatic that is much severer than all the scientific axiomatics, much severer too than all the old codes and overcodes that have disappeared, the axiomatic of the world capitalist market. In brief, the flows of code that are liberated in science and techniques by the capitalist regime engender a machinic surplus value that does not directly depend on science and techniques themselves, but on capital a surplus value that is added to human surplus value and that comes to correct the relative diminution of the latter, both of them constituting the whole of the surplus value of flux that characterizes the system. Knowledge, information, and specialized education are just as much parts of capital, knowledge capital, as is the most elementary labor of the worker. And just as we found, on the side of human surplus value insofar as it resulted from decoded flows, an incommensurability or a fundamental asymmetry, no assignable exterior limit, between manual labor and capital, or between two forms of money, here too, on the side of the machinic surplus value resulting from scientific and technical flows of code we find no commensurability or exterior limit between scientific or technical labor even when highly remunerated and the profit of capital that inscribes itself with another sort of writing. In this respect the knowledge flow and the labor flow find themselves in the same situation, determined by capitalist decoding or deterritorialization. But if it is true that innovations are adopted only insofar as they entail a rise in profits through a lowering of costs of production, and if there exists a sufficiently high volume of production to justify them, the corollary that derives from this proposition is that investment in innovations is never sufficient to realize or absorb the surplus value of flux that is produced on the one side as on the other. Point 78 Marx has clearly demonstrated the importance of the problem, the ever-widening circle of capitalism is completed, while reproducing its imminent limits on an ever-larger scale, only if the surplus value is not merely produced or extorted, but absorbed, or realized. Point 79 If the capitalist is not defined in terms of enjoyment, the reason is not merely that his aim is the production for production's sake that generates surplus value, it also includes the realization of the surplus value, an unrealized surplus value of flux is as if not produced, and becomes embodied in unemployment and stagnation. 
it is easy to list the principal modes of absorption of surplus value outside the spheres of consumption and investment, advertising, civil government, militarism, and imperialism. The role of the state in this regard, within the capitalist axiomatic, is the more manifest in that what it absorbs is not sliced from the surplus value of the firms, but added to their surplus value by bringing the capitalist economy closer to full output within the given limits, and by widening these limits in turn especially within an order of military expenditures that are in no way competitive with private enterprise, quite the contrary, it took a war to accomplish what the New Deal had failed to accomplish. The role of a politico-military economic complex is the more manifest in that it guarantees the extraction of human surplus value on the periphery and in the appropriated zones of the center, but also because it engenders for its own part an enormous machinic surplus value by mobilizing the resources of knowledge and information capital, and finally because it absorbs the greater part of the surplus value produced. The state, its police, and its army form a gigantic enterprise of anti-production, but at the heart of production itself, and conditioning this production. Here we discover a new determination of the properly capitalist field of imminence, not only the interplay of the relations and differential coefficients of decoded flows, not only the nature of the limits that capitalism reproduces on an ever wider scale as interior limits, but the presence of anti-production within production itself. The apparatus of anti-production is no longer a transcendent instance that opposes production, limits it, or checks it, on the contrary, it insinuates itself everywhere in the productive machine and becomes firmly wedded to it in order to regulate its productivity and realize surplus value which explains, for example, the difference between the despotic bureaucracy and the capitalist bureaucracy. This effusion from the apparatus of anti-production is characteristic of the entire capitalist system, the capitalist effusion is that of anti-production within production at all levels of the process. On the one hand, it alone is capable of realizing capitalism's supreme goal, which is to produce lack in the large aggregates, to introduce lack where there is always too much, by affecting the absorption of overabundant resources. On the other hand, it alone doubles the capital and the flow of knowledge with a capital and an equivalent flow of stupidity that also affects an absorption and a realization, and that ensures the integration of groups and individuals into the system. Not only lack amid overabundance, but stupidity in the midst of knowledge and science, it will be seen in particular how it is at the level of the state and the military that the most progressive sectors of scientific or technical knowledge combine with those feeble archaism bearing the greatest burden of current functions. Here Andre Gortz's double portrait of the scientific and technical worker takes on its full meaning. Although he has mastered a flow of knowledge, information, and training, he is so absorbed in capital that the reflux of organized, axiomatized stupidity coincides with him, so that, when he goes home in the evening, he rediscovers his little desiring machines by tinkering with a television set o eighty. Of course the scientist as such has no revolutionary potential, he is the first integrated agent of integration, a refuge for bad conscience, and the force destroyer of his own creativity. Let us consider the more striking example of a career at El American, with abrupt mutations, just as we imagine such a career to be, Gregory Battison begins by fleeing the civilized world, by becoming an ethnologist and following the primitive codes and the savage flows, then he turns in the direction of flows that are more and more decoded, 
those of schizophrenia, from which he extracts an interesting psychoanalytic theory, then, still in search of a beyond, of another wall to break through, he turns to dolphins, to the language of dolphins, to flows that are even stranger and more deterritorialized. But where does the dolphin flux end, if not with the basic research projects of the American army, which brings us back to preparations for war and to the absorption of surplus value? In comparison to the capitalist state, the socialist states are children but children who learn something from their father concerning the axiomatizing role of the state. But the socialist states have more trouble stopping unexpected flow leakage except by direct violence. What on the contrary is called the co-opting power of capitalism can be explained by the fact that its axiomatic is not more flexible, but wider, and more englobing. In such a system no one escapes participation in the activity of anti-production that drives the entire productive system. But it is not only those who man and supply the military machine who are engaged in an anti-human enterprise. The same can be said in varying degrees of many millions of other workers who produce, and create wants for, goods and services which no one needs. And so interdependent are the various sectors and branches of the economy that nearly everyone is involved in one way or another in these anti-human activities, the farmer supplying food to troops fighting in Vietnam, the tool and die makers turning out the intricate machinery needed for a new automobile model, the manufacturers of paper and ink and TV sets whose products are used to control the minds of the people, and so on and so on 81. Thus the three segments of the ever-widening capitalist reproduction process are joined, three segments that also define the three aspects of its imminence, one, the one that extracts human surplus value on the basis of the differential relation between decoded flows of labor and production, and that moves from the center to the periphery while nevertheless maintaining vast residual zones at the center, two, the one that extracts machinic surplus value, on the basis of an axiomatic of the flows of scientific and technical code, in the core areas of the center, 3, and the one that absorbs or realizes these two forms of surplus value of flux by guaranteeing the emission of both, and by constantly injecting anti-production into the producing apparatus. Schizophrenization occurs on the periphery, but it occurs at the center and at the core as well. The definition of surplus value must be modified in terms of the machinic surplus value of constant capital, which distinguishes itself from the human surplus value of variable capital and from the non-measurable nature of this aggregate of surplus value of flux. It cannot be defined by the difference between the value of labor capacity and the value created by labor capacity, but by the incommensurability between two flows that are nonetheless imminent to each other, by the disparity between the two aspects of money that express them, and by the absence of a limit exterior to their relationship the one measuring the true economic force, the other measuring a purchasing power determined as income. The first is the immense deterritorialized flow that constitutes the full body of capital. An economist of the caliber of Bernard Schmidt finds strange lyrical words to characterize this flow of infinite debt, an instantaneous creative flow that the banks create spontaneously as a debt owing to themselves, a creation ex nihilo that, instead of transferring a pre-existing currency as means of payment, hollows out at one extreme of the full body a negative money, a debt entered as a liability of the banks, and projects at the other extreme a positive money, a credit granted the productive economy by the banks, 
a flow possessing a power of mutation that does not enter into income and is not assigned to purchases, a pure availability, non-possession and non-wealth. Point 82 The other aspect of money represents the reflux, that is, the relationship that it assumes with goods as soon as it acquires a purchasing power through its distribution to workers or production factors. Through its allotment in the form of incomes a relationship that it loses as soon as the latter are converted into real goods, at which point everything recommences by means of a new production that will first come under the sway of the first aspect. The incommensurability of the two aspects the flux and the reflux shows that nominal wages fail to embrace the totality of the national income, since the wage earners allow a great quantity of revenues to escape. These revenues are tapped by the firms and in turn form an afflux by means of a conjunction, a flow this time uninterrupted of raw profit, constituting at one go an undivided quantity flowing over the full body, however diverse the uses for which it is allocated, interest, dividends, management salaries, purchase of production goods, etc. 83 The incompetent observer has the impression that this whole economic schema, this whole story is profoundly schizo. The aim of the theory is clear a theory that refrains, however, from employing any moral reference. Who is robbed? Is the serious implied question that echoes Clavel's ironic question, who is alienated? Yet no one is or can be robbed just as, according to Gavel, one no longer knows who is alienated or who does the alienating. Who steals? Certainly not the finance capitalist as the representative of the great instantaneous creative flow, which is not even a possession and has no purchasing power. Who is robbed? Certainly not the worker who is not even bought, since the reflux or salary distribution creates the purchasing power, instead of presupposing it. Who would be capable of stealing? Certainly not the industrial capitalist as the representative of the afflux of profit, since profits do not flow in the reflux, but side by side with, deviating from rather than penalizing the flow that creates incomes. How much flexibility there is in the axiomatic of capitalism, always ready to widen its own limits so as to add a new axiom to a previously saturated system? You say you want an axiom for wage earners, for the working class and the unions? Well then, let's see what we can do and thereafter profit will flow alongside wages, side by side, reflux and afflux. An axiom will be found even for the language of dolphins. Marx often alluded to the golden age of the capitalist, when the latter didn't hide his own cynicism, in the beginning, at least, he could not be unaware of what he was doing, extorting surplus value. But how this cynicism has grown to the point where he is able to declare, no, nobody is being robbed. For everything is then based on the disparity between two kinds of flows, as in the fathomless abyss where profit and surplus value are engendered, the flow of merchant capital's economic force and the flow that is derisively named purchasing power a flow made truly impotent that represents the absolute impotence of the wage earner as well as the relative dependence of the industrial capitalist. This is money and the market, capitalism's true police. In a certain sense, capitalist economists are not mistaken when they present the economy as being perpetually in need of monetarization, as if it were always necessary to inject money into the economy from the outside according to a supply and a demand. In this manner the system indeed holds together and functions, and perpetually fulfills its own imminence. 
In this manner it is indeed the global object of an investment of desire. The wage earner's desire, the capitalist's desire, everything moves to the rhythm of one and the same desire, founded on the differential relation of flows having no assignable exterior limit, and where capitalism reproduces its imminent limits on an ever-widening and more comprehensive scale. Hence it is at the level of a generalized theory of flows that one is able to reply to the question, how does one come to desire strength while also desiring one's own impotence? How was such a social field able to be invested by desire? And how far does desire go beyond so-called objective interests, when it is a question of flows to set in motion and to break? Doubtless Marxists will remind us that the formation of money as a specific relation within capitalism depends on the mode of production that makes the economy a monetary economy. The fact remains that the apparent objective movement of capital which is by no means a failure to recognize or an illusion of consciousness shows that the productive essence of capitalism can itself function only in this necessarily monetary or commodity form that controls it, and whose flows and relations between flows contain the secret of the investment of desire. It is at the level of flows, the monetary flows included, and not at the level of ideology, that the integration of desire is achieved. So what is the solution? Which is the revolutionary path? Psychoanalysis is of little help, entertaining as it does the most intimate of relations with money, and recording while refusing to recognize it an entire system of economic monetary dependences at the heart of the desire of every subject it treats. Psychoanalysis constitutes for its part a gigantic enterprise of absorption of surplus value. But which is the revolutionary path? Is there one, to withdraw from the world market, as Samir Emin advises third world countries to do, in a curious revival of the fascist economic solution? Or might it be to go in the opposite direction? To go still further, that is, in the movement of the market, of decoding and deterritorialization? For perhaps the flows are not yet deterritorialized enough, not decoded enough, from the viewpoint of a theory and a practice of a highly schizophrenic character. Not to withdraw from the process, but to go further, to accelerate the process, as Nietzsche put it, in this matter, the truth is that we haven't seen anything yet. 10. Capitalist Representation Writing has never been capitalism's thing. Capitalism is profoundly illiterate. The death of writing is like the death of God or the death of the Father, the thing was settled a long time ago, although the news of the event is slow to reach us, and there survives in us the memory of extinct signs with which we still write. The reason for this is simple, writing implies a use of language in general according to which graphism becomes aligned on the voice, but also overcodes it and induces a fictitious voice from on high that functions as a signifier. The arbitrary nature of the thing designated, the subordination of the signified, the transcendence of the despotic signifier, and finally, its consecutive decomposition into minimal elements within a field of imminence uncovered by the withdrawal of the despot all this is evidence that writing belongs to imperial despotic representation. Once this is said, what exactly is meant when someone announces the collapse of the Gutenberg galaxy? Of course capitalism has made and continues to make use of writing, not only is writing adapted to money as the general equivalent, but the specific functions of money in capitalism went by way of writing and printing, and in some measure continue to do so. 
The fact nonetheless remains that writing typically plays the role of an archaism in capitalism, the Gutenberg press being the element that confers on the archaism a current function. But the capitalist use of language is different in nature, it is realized or becomes concrete within the field of imminence peculiar to capitalism itself, with the appearance of the technical means of expression that correspond to the generalized decoding of flows, instead of still referring, in a direct or indirect form, to despotic overcoding. This seems to us to be the significance of McLuhan's analyses, to have shown what a language of decoded flows is, as opposed to a signifier that strangles and overcodes the flows. In the first place, for non-signifying language anything will do, whether it be phonic, graphic, gestural, etc., no flow is privileged in this language, which remains indifferent to its substance or its support, inasmuch as the latter is an amorphous continuum. The electric flow can be considered as the realization of such a flow that is indeterminate as such. But a substance is said to be formed when a flow enters into a relationship with another flow, such that the first defines a content and the second, an expression. The deterritorialized flows of content and expression are in a state of conjunction or reciprocal precondition that constitutes figures as the ultimate units of both content and expression. These figures do not derive from a signifier nor are they even signs as minimal elements of the signifier, they are non-signs, or rather non-signifying signs, points signs having several dimensions, flows breaks, or schizes that form images through their coming together in a whole, but that do not maintain any identity when they pass from one whole to another. Hence the figures, that is, the schizes or breaks flows are in no way figurative, they become figurative only in a particular constellation that dissolves in order to be replaced by another one. Three million points per second transmitted by television, only a few of which are retained. Electric language does not go by way of the voice or writing, data processing does without them both, as does that discipline appropriately named fluidics, which operates by means of streams of gas, the computer is a machine for instantaneous and generalized decoding. Michel Serres defines in this sense the correlation of the break and the flow in the signs of the new technical language machines, where production is narrowly determined by information, take for example a cloverleaf highway interchange. It is a quasi-point that analyses, through multiple overlappings, along a dimension that is normal to the network space, the lines of flow for which it serves as a receiver. On it one can go from any afferent direction to any efferent direction, and in whatever order, without ever encountering any of the other directions. If I like, I will never come back to the same point, although it will be the same. A topological knot where everything is connected without confusion, where everything flows together and is distributed. Thus a knot may be seen as a point having several dimensions which, far from cancelling the flows, contains them and sets them in motion. Point 84 This cord running off of production through information shows once again that the productive essence of capitalism functions or speaks only in the language of signs imposed on it by merchant capital or the axiomatic of the market. There are great differences between such a linguistics of flows and linguistics of the signifier. Saussurian linguistics, for example, in effect discovers a field of immanence constituted by value i.e., by the system of relations among ultimate elements of the signifier, but apart from the fact that this field of immanence still presupposes the transcendence of the signifier, 
which uncovers the field if only through the signifier's own withdrawal, the elements populating this field have for a criterion a minimal identity that they owe to their relations of opposition, and that they keep throughout all the types of variations affecting them. The elements of the signifier as distinguishing units are regulated by coded gaps that the signifier overcodes in its turn. There result diverse but always convergent consequences, the comparison of language to a game, the signified signifier relationship, where the signified finds itself by nature subordinated to the signifier, figures defined as effects of the signifier itself, the formal elements of the signifier determined in relation to a phonic substance on which writing even confers a secret privilege. We believe that, from all points of view and despite certain appearances, Louis Hjelm's Left's linguistics stands in profound opposition to the Saussurian and post-Saussurian undertaking. Because it abandons all privileged reference. Because it describes a pure field of algebraic imminence that no longer allows any surveillance on the part of a transcendent instance, even one that has withdrawn. Because within this field it sets in motion its flows of form and substance, content, and expression. Because it substitutes the relationship of reciprocal precondition between expression and content for the relationship of subordination between signifier and signified. Because there no longer occurs a double articulation between two hierarchized levels of language, but between two convertible deterritorialized planes, constituted by the relation between the form of content and the form of expression. Because in this relation one reaches figures that are no longer effects of a signifier, but skeetses, points signs, or flows breaks that collapse the wall of the signifier, pass through, and continue on beyond. Because these signs have crossed a new threshold of deterritorialization. Because these figures have definitively lost the minimum conditions of identity that define the elements of the signifier itself. Because in Hjelm's Left's linguistics the order of the elements is secondary in relation to the axiomatic of flows and figures. Because the money model in the point sign, or in the figure break stripped of its identity, having now only a floating identity, tends to replace the model of the game. In short, Hjelm's Left's very special position in linguistics, and the reactions he provokes, seem to be explained by the following, that he tends to fashion a purely imminent theory of language that shatters the double game of the voice graphism domination, that causes form and substance, content and expression to flow according to the flows of desire, and that breaks these flows according to points signs and figures skeetses. Far from being an overdetermination of structuralism and of its fondness for the signifier, Hjelm's left's linguistics implies the concerted destruction of the signifier, and constitutes a decoded theory of language about which one can also say an ambiguous tribute that it is the only linguistics adapted to the nature of both the capitalist and the schizophrenic flows, until now, the only modern and not archaic theory of language. The extreme importance of J. F. Lyotard's recent book is due to its position as the first generalized critique of the signifier. In his most general proposition, in fact, he shows that the signifier is overtaken toward the outside by figurative images, just as it is overtaken toward the inside by the pure figures that compose it or, more decisively, by the figural that comes to short-circuit the signifier's coded gaps, inserting itself between them, and working under the conditions of identity of their elements. In language and in writing itself, sometimes the letters as breaks, as shattered partial objects and sometimes the words as undivided flows, 
as non-decomposable blocks, or full bodies having a tonic value constitute a signifying signs that deliver themselves over to the order of desire, rushes of breath and cries. In particular, formal investigations concerning manual or printed writing change their meaning according to whether the characteristics of the letters and the qualities of the words are in the service of a signifier, whose effects they express following exegetical rules, or whether, on the contrary, they break through this wall so as to set flows in motion, and establish breaks that overflow or rupture the signs conditions of identity, and that cause books within the book to flow and to disintegrate, entering into multiple configurations whose possibilities were already the object of the typographical exercises of Mallarmé always passing underneath the signifier, filing through the wall, which again shows that the death of writing is infinite, so long as it arises and arrives from within. Similarly, in the plastic arts there is the pure figural dimension formed by the active line and the multidimensional point, and on the other hand, the multiple configurations formed by the passive line and the surface it engenders, so as to reveal as in Paul Clay those intermundia that perhaps are visible only to children, madmen, and primitives 85. Or in dreams, in some very beautiful pages, Lyotard shows that what is at work in dreams is not the signifier but a figural dimension underneath, which gives rise to configurations of images that make use of words, making them flow and cutting them according to flows and points that are not linguistic and do not depend on the signifier or its regulated elements. Thus Lyotard everywhere reverses the order of the signifier and the figure. It is not the figures that depend on the signifier and its effects, but the signifying chain that depends on the figural effects this chain itself being composed of a signifying signs crushing the signifiers as well as the signifieds, treating words as things, fabricating new unities, creating from non-figurative figures configurations of images that form and then disintegrate. And these constellations are like flows that imply the breaks affected by points, just as the points imply the fluxion of the material they cause to flow or leak, the sole unity without identity is that of the flux skis or the break flow. The pure figural element the figure matrix Lyotard correctly names desire, which carries us to the gates of schizophrenia as a process point 86. But what explains the reader's impression that Lyotard is continually arresting the process, and steering the skeetses toward shores he has so recently left behind, toward coded or overcoded territories, spaces, and structures, to which they bring only transgressions, disorders, and deformations that are secondary in spite of everything, instead of forming and transporting further the desiring machines that are in opposition to the structures, and the intensities that are in opposition to the spaces. The explanation is that, despite his attempt at linking desire to a fundamental yes, Lyotard reintroduces lack and absence into desire, maintains desire under the law of castration, at the risk of restoring the entire signifier along with the law, and discovers the matrix of the figure in fantasy, the simple fantasy that comes to veil desiring production, the whole of desire as effective production. But at least for an instant the mortgage of the signifier was raised, that enormous archaism that causes so many of us to groan and bow under its weight, and that others use to establish a new terrorism, diverting Lacan's imperial discourse into a university discourse characterized by a pure scientificity that scientificity perfectly suited for resupplying our neuroses, for strangling the process once again, and for overcoating Oedipus with castration, while chaining us to the current. 
structural functions of a vanished archaic despot. For it is certain that, even and especially in their manifestations of extreme force, neither capitalism, nor revolution nor schizophrenia follows the paths of the signifier. Civilization is defined by the decoding and the deterritorialization of flows in capitalist production. Any method will do for ensuring this universal decoding, the privatization brought to bear on property, goods, and the means of production, but also on the organs of private man himself, the abstraction of monetary quantities, but also the abstraction of the quantity of labor, the limitless nature of the relationship between capital and labor capacity, and between the flows of financing and the flows of incomes or means of payment, the scientific and technical form assumed by flows of code. Themselves, the formation of floating configurations starting from lines and points without a discernible identity. The route taken by the decoded flows is traced by recent monetary history, the role of the dollar, short-term migrating capital, the floating of currencies, the new means of financing and credit, the special drawing rights, and the new form of crises and speculations. Our societies exhibit a marked taste for all codes codes foreign or exotic but this taste is destructive and morbid. While decoding doubtless means understanding and translating a code, it also means destroying the code as such, assigning it an archaic, folkloric, or residual function, which makes of psychoanalysis and ethnology two disciplines highly regarded in our modern societies. Yet it would be a serious error to consider the capitalist flows and the schizophrenic flows as identical, under the general theme of a decoding of the flows of desire. Their affinity is great, to be sure, everywhere capitalism sets in motion schizoflows that animate our arts and our sciences, just as they congeal into the production of our own sick, the schizophrenics. We have seen that the relationship of schizophrenia to capitalism went far beyond problems of modes of living, environment, ideology, etc., and that it should be examined at the deepest level of one and the same economy, one and the same production process. Our society produces schizos the same way it produces Prel shampoo or Ford cars, the only difference being that the schizos are not saleable. How then does one explain the fact that capitalist production is constantly arresting the schizophrenic process and transforming the subject of the process into a confined clinical entity, as though it saw in this process the image of its own death coming from within? Why does it make the schizophrenic into a sick person not only nominally but in reality? Why does it confine its madmen and madwomen instead of seeing in them its own heroes and heroines, its own fulfillment? And where it can no longer recognize the figure of a simple illness, why does it keep its artists and even its scientists under such close surveillance as though they risked unleashing flows that would be dangerous for capitalist production and charged with a revolutionary potential, so long as these flows are not co-opted or absorbed by the laws of the market? Why does it form in turn a gigantic machine for social repression psychic repression, aimed at what nevertheless constitutes its own reality the decoded flows? The answer as we have seen is that capitalism is indeed the limit of all societies, insofar as it brings about the decoding of the flows that the other social formations coded and overcoded. But it is the relative limit of every society, it affects relative breaks, because it substitutes for the codes an extremely rigorous axiomatic that maintains the energy of the flows in a bound state on the body of capital as a socius that is deterritorialized, but also a socius that is even more pitiless than any other. Schizophrenia, on the contrary, 
is indeed the absolute limit that causes the flows to travel in a free state on a desocialized body without organs. Hence one can say that schizophrenia is the exterior limit of capitalism itself or the conclusion of its deepest tendency, but that capitalism only functions on condition that it inhibit this tendency, or that it push back or displace this limit, by substituting for it its own imminent relative limits, which it continually reproduces on a widened scale. It axiomatizes with one hand what it decodes with the other. Such is the way one must reinterpret the Marxist law of the counteracting tendency. With the result that schizophrenia pervades the entire capitalist field from one end to the other. But for capitalism it is a question of binding the schizophrenic charges and energies into a world axiomatic that always opposes the revolutionary potential of decoded flows with new interior limits. And it is impossible in such a regime to distinguish, even in two phases, between decoding and the axiomatization that comes to replace the vanished codes. The flows are decoded and axiomatized by capitalism at the same time. Hence schizophrenia is not the identity of capitalism, but on the contrary its difference, its divergence, and its death. Monetary flows are perfectly schizophrenic realities, but they exist and function only within the imminent axiomatic that exorcises and repels this reality. The language of a banker, a general, an industrialist, a middle or high-level manager, or a government minister is a perfectly schizophrenic language, but that functions only statistically within the flattening axiomatic of connections that puts it in the service of the capitalist order. Point 87, at the highest level of linguistics as a science, Hjelmslev is able to effect a vast decoding of language only by setting in motion from the start an axiomatic machine based on the supposed finite number of the figures considered. Then what becomes of the truly schizophrenic language and the truly decoded and unbound flows that manage to break through the wall or absolute limit? The capitalist axiomatic is so rich that one more axiom is added for the books of a great writer whose lexical and stylistic characteristics can always be computed by means of an electronic machine, or for the discourse of madmen that can always be heard within the framework of a hospital, administrative, and psychiatric axiomatic. In brief, the notion of break flow has seemed to us to define both capitalism and schizophrenia. But not in the same way, they are not at all the same thing, depending on whether the decodings are caught up in an axiomatic or not, on whether one remains at the level of the large aggregates functioning statistically, or crosses the barrier that separates them from the unbound molecular positions, on whether the flows of desire reach this absolute limit or are content to displace a relative imminent limit that will reconstitute itself further along, on whether controlling re-territorializations are added to the processes of deterritorialization, and on whether money burns or bursts into flames. Why not merely say that capitalism replaces one code with another, that it carries into effect a new type of coding? For two reasons, one of which represents a kind of moral impossibility, the other a logical impossibility. All the cruelties and terrors meet in the pre-capitalist formations, some fragments of the signifying chain are struck by secrecy secret societies or initiation groups but there is never anything in these societies that is, strictly speaking, unavowable. It is with the thing, capitalism, that the unavowable begins, there is not a single economic or financial operation that, assuming it is translated in terms of a code, would not lay bare its own unavowable nature, that is, 
its intrinsic perversion or essential cynicism, the age of bad conscience is also the age of pure cynicism. But in point of fact it is impossible to code such operations, in the first place, a code determines the respective qualities of the flows passing through the socius, for example, the three circuits of consumer goods, prestige goods, and women and children, the characteristic object of codes is therefore to establish necessarily indirect relations among these qualified and therefore incommensurable codes. Such relations indeed imply a quantitative siphoning off of portions of the different sorts of flows, but these quantities do not enter into equivalences that would presuppose an unlimited something, they simply form composites that are themselves qualitative, essentially mobile, and limited, where differences between the elements compensate the disequilibrium, whence the relationship of prestige and consumption in the block of finite debt. All these code characteristics indirect, qualitative, and limited are sufficient to show that a code is not, and can never be, economic, on the contrary, it expresses the apparent objective movement according to which the economic forces or productive connections are attributed to an extra economic instance as though they emanated from it, an instance that serves as a support and an agent of inscription. That is what Althusser and Balibar show so well, how juridical and political relations are determined as dominant in the case of feudalism, for example because surplus labor as a form of surplus value constitutes a flux that is qualitatively and temporally distinct from that of labor, and consequently must enter into a composite that is itself qualitative and implies non-economic factors. Or the way the autochthonous relations of alliance and filiation are determined as dominant in the so-called primitive societies, where the economic forces and flows are inscribed on the full body of the earth and are attributed to it. In short, there is a code where a full body as an instance of anti-production falls back on the economy that it appropriates. That is why the sign of desire, as an economic sign that consists in producing and breaking flows, is accompanied by a sign of necessarily extra-economic power, although its causes and effects lie within the economy, for example, the sign of alliance in relation to the power of the creditor. Or what amounts to the same thing surplus value here is determined as a surplus value of code. Hence the code relation is not only indirect, qualitative, and limited, because of these very characteristics, it is also extra-economic, and by virtue of this fact engineers the couplings between qualified flows. Consequently it implies a system of collective appraisal and evaluation, and a set-off organs of perception, or more precisely of belief, as a condition of existence and survival of the society in question thus the collective investment of organs that causes men to be directly coded, and the appraising eye as we have analyzed it in the primitive system. It should be noted that these general traits characterizing a code are rediscovered precisely in what today is called a genetic code, not because it depends on an effect of a signifier, but on the contrary because the chain it constitutes is only signifying in a secondary way, insofar as it calls into play couplings between qualified flows, interactions that are exclusively indirect, qualitative composites that are essentially limited, and organs of perception and extra chemical factors that select and appropriate the cellular connections. So many reasons for defining capitalism by a social axiomatic that stands opposed to codes in every respect. First of all, money as a general equivalent represents an abstract quantity that is indifferent to the qualified nature of the flows. But the equivalence itself points to the position of a relation without limitation, 
in the formula MCM, the circulation of money as capital has therefore no limits 88. The studies of Bohannon concerning the Tiv of the Niger River, or those of Salisbury concerning the Cyane of New Guinea, have shown how the introduction of money as an equivalent which makes it possible to begin and end with money, therefore never to end at all is enough to disturb the circuits of qualified flows, to decompose the finite blocks of debt, and to destroy the very basis of codes. Secondly, the fact remains that money as an unlimited abstract quantity cannot be divorced from a becoming concrete without which it would not become capital and would not appropriate production. We have seen that this becoming concrete appeared in the differential relation, but it must be borne in mind that the differential relation is not an indirect relation between qualified or coded flows, it is a direct relation between decoded flows whose respective qualities have no existence prior to the differential relation itself. The quality of the flows results solely from their conjunction as decoded flows, outside this conjunction they would remain purely virtual, this conjunction is also the disjunction of the abstract quantity through which it becomes something concrete. DX and DY are nothing independent of their relation, which determines the one as a pure quality of the flow of labor and the other as a pure quality of the flow of capital. The progression is therefore the opposite of that of a code, it expresses the capitalist transformation of the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux. Whence the fundamental change in the order of powers. For if one of the flows finds itself subordinated and enslaved to the other, the reason is precisely that they are not to the same power, X and Y2 for example, and that the relation is established between a power and a given magnitude. This is something that became evident as we pursued the analysis of capital and labor at the level of the differential relation between flows of financing, and flows of means of payment or income. Such an extension merely signifies that capital has no industrial essence functioning other than as merchant, financial, and commercial capital, where money would take on functions other than those deriving from its form as the equivalent. But in this way the signs of power completely cease being what they were from the viewpoint of a code, they become coefficients that are directly economic, instead of being doubles to the economic signs of desire and expressing for their part non-economic factors determined as dominant. That the flow of financing is raised to an entirely different power from the flow of means of payment signifies that the power has become directly economic. And yet, as regards paid labor, it is evident that there is no longer any need for a code in order to ensure surplus labor, when the latter is merged qualitatively and temporally with labor itself into one and the same simple magnitude, the condition characterized by surplus value of flux. Hence capital differentiates itself from any other socius or full body, inasmuch as capital itself figures as a directly economic instance, and falls back on production without interposing extra economic factors that would be inscribed in the form of a code. With the advent of capitalism the full body becomes truly naked, as does the worker himself who is attached to this full body. In this sense the anti-production apparatus ceases to be transcendent, and pervades all production and becomes coextensive with it. Thirdly, as a result of these developed conditions involving the destruction of all codes within a becoming concrete, the absence of limits takes on a new meaning. This absence no longer simply designates the unlimited abstract quantity, but the effective absence of any limit or end for the differential relation where the abstract becomes something concrete. Concerning capitalism, 
we maintain that it both does and does not have an exterior limit, it has an exterior limit that is schizophrenia, that is, the absolute decoding of flows, but it functions only by pushing back and exorcising this limit. And it also has, yet does not have, interior limits, it has interior limits under the specific conditions of capitalist production and circulation, that is, in capital itself, but it functions only by reproducing and widening these limits on an always vaster scale. The strength of capitalism indeed resides in the fact that its axiomatic is never saturated, that it is always capable of adding a new axiom to the previous ones. Capitalism defines a field of imminence and never ceases to fully occupy this field. But this deterritorialized field finds itself determined by an axiomatic, in contrast to the territorial field determined by primitive codes. Differential relations of such a nature as to be filled by surplus value, an absence of exterior limits that it is filled by the widening of internal limits, and the effusion of anti-production within production so as to be filled by the absorption of surplus value these constitute the three aspects of capitalism's imminent axiomatic. And monetarization everywhere comes to fill the abyss of capitalist imminence, introducing there, as Schmidt says, a deformation, a convulsion, an explosion in a word, a movement of extreme violence 89. There results, finally, a fourth characteristic that places the axiomatic in opposition to codes. The axiomatic does not need to write in bare flesh, to mark bodies and organs, nor does it need to fashion a memory for man. In contrast to codes, the axiomatic finds in its different aspects its own organs of execution, perception, and memorization. Memory has become a bad thing. Above all, there is no longer any need of belief, and the capitalist is merely striking a pose when he bemoans the fact that nowadays no one believes in anything anymore. Language no longer signifies something that must be believed, it indicates rather what is going to be done, something that the shrewd or the competent are able to decode, to half understand. Moreover, despite the abundance of identity cards, files, and other means of control, capitalism does not even need to write in books to make up for the vanished body markings. Those are only relics, archaism with a current function. The person has become private in reality, insofar as he derives from abstract quantities and becomes concrete in the becoming concrete of these same quantities. It is these quantities that are marked, no longer the persons themselves, your capital or your labor capacity, the rest is not important, will always find a place for you within the expanded limits of the system, even if an axiom has to be created just for you. There is no longer any need of a collective investment of organs, as they are sufficiently filled with the floating images constantly produced by capitalism. To pursue a remark of Henry Lefebvre's, these images do not initiate a making public of the private so much as a privatization of the public, the whole world unfolds right at home, without one's having to leave the TV screen. This gives private persons a very special role in the system, a role of application, and no longer of implication, in a code. The hour of Oedipus draws nigh. While capitalism thus proceeds by means of an axiomatic and not by means of a code, one must not think that it replaces the socius, the social machine, with an aggregate of technical machines. The difference in nature between the two types of machines persists, although they are both machines in the strict sense, without metaphor.
Capitalism's originality resides rather in the fact that the social machine has for its parts technical machines as constant capital attached to the full body of the socius, and no longer men, the latter having become adjacent to the technical machines whence the fact that inscription no longer bears directly, or at least in theory has no need of bearing directly, on men. But an axiomatic of itself is by no means a simple technical machine, not even an automatic or cybernetic machine. Bourbaki says as much concerning scientific axiomatics, they do not form a Taylor system, nor a mechanical game of isolated formulas, but rather imply intuitions that are linked to resonances and conjunctions of structures, and that are merely aided by the powerful levers of technique. This holds even truer of the social axiomatic, the way in which this axiomatic fulfills its own imminence, pushes back or enlarges its limits, adds still more axioms while preventing the system from becoming saturated, and functions well only by grinding, sputtering, and starting up again all this implies social organs of decision, administration, reaction, inscription, a technocracy and a bureaucracy that cannot be reduced to the operation of technical machines. In short, the conjunction of the decoded flows, their differential relations, and their multiple schizes or breaks require a whole apparatus of regulation whose principal organ is the state. The capitalist state is the regulator of decoded flows as such, insofar as they are caught up in the axiomatic of capital. In this sense it indeed completes the becoming concrete that seemed to us to preside over the evolution of the abstract despotic er state, from being at first the transcendent unity, it becomes imminent to the field of social forces, enters into their service, and serves as a regulator of the decoded and axiomatized flows. The capitalist state completes the becoming concrete so fully that, in another sense, it alone represents a veritable rupture with this becoming, a break with it, in contrast to the other forms that were established on the ruins of the Ur state. For the Ur state was defined by overcoding, and its derivatives, from the ancient city state to the monarchic state, already found themselves in the presence of flows that were decoded or in the process of being decoded. These flows doubtless had the effect of making the state more and more imminent and subordinate to the actual field of forces, but precisely because the circumstances were not right for these flows to enter into a conjunction, the state could be content to save fragments of overcoding and of codes, to invent others, and by marshalling all its forces, was even able to prevent the conjunction from taking place, as for the rest, its project was to resuscitate the Ur state insofar as possible. The capitalist state is in a different situation, it is produced by the conjunction of the decoded or deterritorialized flows, and is able to carry the becoming imminent to its highest point only to the extent that it is party to the generalized breakdown of codes and overcodings, and evolves entirely within this new axiomatic that results from a hitherto unknown conjunction. Once again, this axiomatic is not the invention of capitalism, since it is identical with capital itself. On the contrary, capitalism is its offspring, its result. Capitalism merely ensures the regulation of the axiomatic, it regulates or even organizes the failures of the axiomatic as conditions of the latter's operation, it watches over or directs progress toward a saturation of the axiomatic and the corresponding widenings of the limits. Never before has a state lost so much of its power in order to enter with so much force into the service of the signs of economic power. And capitalism, despite what is said to the contrary, 
assumed this role very early, in fact from the start, from its gestation in form still semi-feudal or monarchic from the standpoint of the flow of free workers, the control of manual labor and of wages, from the standpoint of the flow of industrial and commercial production, the granting of monopolies, favorable conditions for accumulation, and the struggle against overproduction. There has never been a liberal capitalism, action against monopolies goes back first of all to a time when commercial and financial capital is still allied with the old system of production, and when nascent industrial capitalism can secure its production and its market only by obtaining the abolition of such privileges. That the struggle against monopolistic privileges does not imply any struggle against the very principle of state control providing the state sees fit can be seen clearly in mercantilism, inasmuch as it expresses the new commercial functions of a capital that has secured for itself direct interests in production. As a general rule, state controls and regulations tend to disappear or diminish only in situations where there is an abundant labor supply and an unusual expansion of markets. Point 90 that is, when capitalism functions with a very small number of axioms within relative limits that are sufficiently wide. This situation ceased to exist long ago, and one must regard as a decisive factor in this evolution the organization of a powerful working class that required a high and stable level of employment, and forced capitalism to multiply its axioms while having at the same time to reproduce its limits on an ever-expanding scale, the axiom of displacement from the center to the periphery. Capitalism was able to digest the Russian Revolution only by continually adding new axioms to the old ones, an axiom for the working class, for the unions, and so on. But it is always prepared to add more axioms, it adds axioms for many other things besides, things that are much smaller, tiny even, absurdly insignificant, it has a peculiar passion for such things that leaves the essential unchanged. The state is thus induced to play an increasingly important role in the regulation of the axiomatized flows, with regard to production and its planning, the economy and its monetarization, and surplus value and its absorption, by the state apparatus itself. The regulative functions of the state do not imply any sort of arbitration between social classes. That the state is entirely in the service of the so-called ruling class is an obvious practical fact, but a fact that does not reveal its theoretical foundation. The latter is simple to explain, from the viewpoint of the capitalist axiomatic there is only one class, a class with a universalist vocation, the bourgeoisie. Plekhanov notes that the French school of the 19th century, under the influence of Saint Simon, should be credited with the discovery of class struggle and its role in history precisely the same men who praise the struggle of the bourgeois class against the nobility and feudalism, and who come to a halt before the proletariat and deny that there can be any difference in class between the industrialist or banker and the worker, but only a fusion into one and the same flow as with profits. And wages.91 This proposition contains something other than an ideological blindness or denial. Classes are the negative of castes and statuses, classes are orders, castes, and statuses that have been decoded. To reread history through the class struggle is to read it in terms of the bourgeoisie as the decoding and decoded class. It is the only class as such, inasmuch as it leads the struggle against codes, and merges with the generalized decoding of flows. In this capacity it is sufficient to fill the capitalist field of imminence. And in point of fact, something new occurs with the rise of the bourgeoisie, 
the disappearance of enjoyment as an end, the new conception of the conjunction according to which the sole end is abstract wealth and its realization in forms other than consumption. The generalized slavery of the despotic state at least implied the existence of masters, and an apparatus of anti-production distinct from the sphere of production. But the bourgeois field of imminence as delimited by the conjunction of the decoded flows, the negation of any transcendence or exterior limit, and the effusion of anti-production inside production itself institutes an unrivaled slavery, an unprecedented subjugation, there are no longer even any masters, but only slaves commanding other slaves, there is no longer any need to burden the animal from the outside, it shoulders its own burden. Not that man is ever the slave of technical machines, he is rather the slave of the social machine. The bourgeois sets the example, he absorbs surplus value for ends that, taken as a whole, have nothing to do with his own enjoyment, more utterly enslaved than the lowest of slaves, he is the first servant of the ravenous machine, the beast of the reproduction of capital, internalization of the infinite debt. I too am a slave these are the new words spoken by the master. Only as personified capital is the capitalist respectable. As such, he shares with the miser the passion for wealth as wealth. But that which in the miser is a mere idiosyncrasy, is, in the capitalist, the effect of the social mechanism, of which he is but one of the wheels 92. It will be said that there is nonetheless a class that rules and a class that is ruled, both defined by surplus value, the distinction between the flow of financing and the flow of income in wages. But this is only partially true, since capitalism is born of the conjunction of the two in the differential relations, and integrates them both in the continually expanded reproduction of its limits. So that the bourgeois is justified in saying, not in terms of ideology, but in the very organization of his axiomatic, there is only one machine, that of the great mutant decoded flow cut off from goods and one class of servants, the decoding bourgeoisie, the class that decodes the castes and the statuses, and that draws from the machine an undivided flow of income convertible into consumer and production goods, a flow on which profits and wages are based. In short, the theoretical opposition is not between two classes, for it is the very notion of class, insofar as it designates the negative of codes, that implies there is only one class. The theoretical opposition lies elsewhere, it is between, on the one hand, the decoded flows that enter into a class axiomatic on the full body of capital, and on the other hand, the decoded flows that free themselves from this axiomatic just as they free themselves from the despotic signifler, that break through this wall, and this wall of a wall, and begin flowing on the full body without organs. The opposition is between the class and those who are outside the class. Between the servants of the machine, and those who sabotage it or its cogs and wheels. Between the social machine's regime and that of the desiring machines. Between the relative interior limits and the absolute exterior limit. If you will, between the capitalists and the schizos in their basic intimacy at the level of decoding, in their basic antagonism at the level of the axiomatic whence the resemblance, in the 19th century socialist's portrait of the proletariat, between the latter and a perfect schizo. That is why the problem of a proletarian class belongs first of all to praxis. The task of the revolutionary socialist movement was to organize a bipolarity of the social field, a bipolarity of classes. 
Of course it is possible to conceive a theoretical determination of the proletarian class at the level of production, those from whom surplus value is extorted, or at the level of money, income and wages. But not only are these determinations sometimes too narrow and sometimes too wide, but the objective being they define as class interest remains purely virtual so long as it is not embodied in a consciousness that, to be sure, does not create it, but actualizes it in an organized party suited to the task of conquering the state apparatus. If the movement of capitalism, in the interplay of its differential relations, is to dodge any assignable fixed limit, to exceed and displace its interior limits, and to always effect breaks of breaks, then the socialist movement seems necessarily led to fix or assign a limit that differentiates the proletariat from the bourgeoisie a great cleavage that will animate a struggle not only economic and financial, but political as well. Now the meaning of just such a conquest of the state apparatus has always been and remains problematical. A supposedly socialist state implies a transformation of production, of the units of production and the economic rationale. But this transformation can only take place starting from an already conquered state that finds itself confronted by the same axiomatic problems of extraction of a surplus or surplus value, of accumulation and absorption, of the market and monetary reckoning. Consequently, either the proletariat prevails and transforms the apparatus in conformity with its objective interest but these operations are carried out under the domination of its consciousness or party vanguard, that is, for the benefit of a bureaucracy or technocracy that stands in for the bourgeoisie as the great absent class or the bourgeoisie keeps its control of the state and is free to secrete its own techno-bureaucracy, and above all to add a few more axioms for the recognition of the proletariat as a second class. It is correct to say that the alternative is not between the market and economic planning, since planning is necessarily introduced in the capitalist state, and the market subsists in the socialist state, if only as a monopolistic market of the state itself. And in effect, how does one define the true alternative without assuming all these problems resolved beforehand? The immense accomplishment of Lenin and the Russian Revolution was to have forged a class consciousness consonant with the objective being or interest of the class, and as a consequence, to have imposed on the capitalist countries a recognition of class bipolarity. But this great Leninist break did not prevent the resurrection of a state capitalism inside socialism itself, any more than it prevented classical capitalism from getting round the break by continuing its veritable mole work, always affecting breaks of breaks that allowed it to integrate into its axiomatic sections of the newly recognized class, while throwing the uncontrolled revolutionary elements no more controlled by official socialism than by capitalism itself further into the distance, too the periphery or into enclaves. Thus the only choice left was between the new terroristic and rigid axiomatic quickly saturated of the socialist state, and the old cynical axiomatic all the more dangerous for being flexible and never saturated of the capitalist state. But in reality, the most direct question is not that of knowing whether an industrial society can do without a surplus, without the absorption of a surplus, without a commodity exchanging and planner state, and even without an equivalent of the bourgeoisie, it is evident both that the answer is no, and that in these terms the question is poorly put. Nor is it a question of knowing whether or not class consciousness, embodied in a party or a state, betrays the objective class interest, to which a kind of potential spontaneity would be ascribed, 
suffocated by the agents claiming to represent that interest. Sartre's analysis in Critique de la raison dialectique appears to us profoundly correct where he concludes that there does not exist any class spontaneity, but only a group spontaneity. Whence the necessity for distinguishing groups in fusion from the class, which remain serial, represented by the party or the state. Point 93 and the two do not exist on the same scale. This is because class interest remains a function of the large molar aggregates, it merely defines a collective preconscious that is necessarily represented in a distinct consciousness that, at this level, does not even present any grounds for asking whether it betrays or not, alienates or not, deforms or not. The problem is situated there, between unconscious group desires and preconscious class interests. It is only starting from this point, as we shall see, that one is able to pose the questions issuing indirectly therefrom, concerning the class preconscious and the representative forms of class consciousness, and the nature of the interests and the process of their realization. Reich always comes back to us with his innocent standards, claiming the rights of a prior distinction between desire and interest, the leadership has no task more urgent, besides that of acquiring a precise understanding of the objective historical process, than to understand, a, what are the progressive desires, ideas, and thoughts which are latent in people of different social strata, occupations, age groups and sexes, and, b, what are the desires, fears, thoughts, and ideas, traditional bonds, which prevent the progressive desires, ideas, etc., from developing 94. The leadership has a tendency rather to reply, when I hear the word desire, I pull out my gun. Desire can never be deceived. Interests can be deceived, unrecognized, or betrayed, but not desire. Whence Reich's cry, no, the masses were not deceived, they desired fascism, and that is what has to be explained. It happens that one desires against one's own interests, capitalism profits from this, but so does socialism, the party, and the party leadership. How does one explain that desire devotes itself to operations that are not failures of recognition, but rather perfectly reactionary unconscious investments? And what does Reich mean when he speaks of traditional bonds? The latter also belong to the historical process and bring us back to the modern functions of the state. Civilized modern societies are defined by processes of decoding and deterritorialization. But what they deterritorialized with one hand, they re-territorialize with the other. These neoterritorialities are often artificial, residual, archaic, but they are archaism having a perfectly current function, our modern way of imbricating, of sectioning off, of reintroducing code fragments, resuscitating old codes, inventing pseudocodes or jargons. Neo-archaism, as Edgar Morin puts it. These modern archaism are extremely complex and varied. Some are mainly folkloric, but they nonetheless represent social and potentially political forces, from domino players to home brewers via the veterans of foreign wars. Others are enclaves whose archaism is just as capable of nourishing a modern fascism as of freeing a revolutionary charge, the ethnic minorities, the Basque problem, the Irish Catholics, the Indian reservations. Some of these archaism take form as if spontaneously, in the very current of the movement of deterritorialization, neighborhood territorialities, territorialities of the large aggregates, 
gangs. Others are organized or promoted by the state, even though they might turn against the state and cause it serious problems, regionalism, nationalism. The fascist state has been without doubt capitalism's most fantastic attempt at economic and political re-territorialization. But the socialist state also has its own minorities, its own territorialities, which reform themselves against the state, or which the state instigates and organizes. Russian nationalism, the territoriality of the party, the proletariat was only able to constitute itself as a class on the basis of artificial neo-territorialities, in parallel fashion, the bourgeoisie re-territorializes itself in forms that are at times the most archaic. The famous personalization of power is like a territoriality that accompanies the deterritorialization of the machine, as its other side. If it is true that the function of the modern state is the regulation of the decoded, deterritorialized flows, one of the principal aspects of this function consists in re-territorializing, so as to prevent the decoded flows from breaking loose at all the edges of the social axiomatic. One sometimes has the impression that the flows of capital would willingly dispatch themselves to the moon if the capitalist state were not there to bring them back to earth. For example, deterritorialization of the flows of financing, but re-territorialization of purchasing power and the means of payment, the role of the central banks. Or the movement of deterritorialization that goes from the center to the periphery is accompanied by a peripheral re-territorialization, a kind of economic and political self-centering of the periphery, either in the modernistic forms of a state socialism or capitalism, or in the archaic form of local despots. It may be all but impossible to distinguish deterritorialization from re-territorialization, since they are mutually enmeshed, or like opposite faces of one and the same process. This essential aspect of the regulation performed by the state is even more readily understood if one sees that it is directly based on the social and economic axiomatic of capitalism as such. It is the very conjunction of the deterritorialized flows that delineates archaic or artificial neoterritorialities. Marx has shown what was the foundation of political economy properly speaking, the discovery of an abstract subjective essence of wealth, in labor, or production and in desire as well, it would seem. It was an immense step forward for Adam Smith to throw out every limiting specification of wealth-creating activity not only manufacturing, or commercial, or agricultural labor, but one as well as others, labor in general. The Abstract Universality of Wealth-Creating Activity 95 Here we have the great movement of decoding or deterritorialization, the nature of wealth is no longer to be sought on the side of the object, under exterior conditions, in the territorial or despotic machine. But Marx is quick to add that this essentially cynical discovery finds itself rectified by a new territorialization, in the form of a new fetishism or a new hypocrisy. Production as the abstract subjective essence is discovered only in the forms of property that objectifies it all over again, that alienates it by re-territorializing it. Although they had a presentiment of the subjective nature of wealth, the mercantilists had determined it as a special activity still tied to a money-creating despotic machine, the physiocrats, pushing this presentiment still further, had tied, subjective activity to a territorial or re-territorialized machine, in the form of agriculture and landed property. And even Adam Smith discovers the great essence of wealth, abstract and subjective, industrial and deterritorialized, 
only by immediately re-territorializing it in the private ownership of the means of production. Nor can one say in this regard that so-called common ownership changes the direction of this movement. Moreover, if it is not a question of writing the history of political economy, but the real history of the corresponding society, one is better able to understand why capitalism is continually re-territorializing with one hand what it was deterritorializing with the other. In Capital Marx analyzes the true reason for the double movement, on the one hand, capitalism can proceed only by continually developing the subjective essence of abstract wealth or production for the sake of production, that is, production as an end in itself, the absolute development of the social productivity of labor, but on the other hand and at the same time, it can do so only in the framework of its own limited purpose, as a determinate mode of production, production of capital, the self-expansion of existing capital 96. Under the first aspect capitalism is continually surpassing its own limits, always deterritorializing further, displaying a cosmopolitan, universal energy which overthrows every restriction and bond, but under the second, strictly complementary, aspect, capitalism is continually confronting limits and barriers that are interior and imminent to itself, and that, precisely because they are imminent, let themselves be overcome only provided they are reproduced on a wider scale, always more. Reterritorialization local, worldwide, planetary. That is why the law of the falling tendency that is, limits never reached because they are always surpassed and always reproduced has seemed to us to have as a corollary and even as a direct manifestation, the simultaneity of the two movements of deterritorialization and reterritorialization. An important consequence emerges from the above considerations. The social axiomatic of modern societies is caught between two poles, and is constantly oscillating from one pole to the other. Born of decoding and deterritorialization, on the ruins of the despotic machine, these societies are caught between the earth state that they would like to resuscitate as an overcoating and re-territorializing unity, and the unfettered flows that carry them toward an absolute threshold. They recode with all their might, with worldwide dictatorship, local dictators, and an all-powerful police, while decoding or allowing the decoding of the fluent quantities of their capital and their populations. They are torn in two directions, archaism and futurism, neo-archaism and ex-futurism, paranoia and schizophrenia. They vacillate between two poles, the paranoiac despotic sign, the sign signifier of the despot that they try to revive as a unit of code, and the sign figure of the schizo as a unit of decoded flux, a skis, a point sign, or flow break. They try to hold onto the one, but they pour or flow out through the other. They are continually behind or ahead of themselves. How can the nostalgia for, and the necessity of, the earth state be reconciled with the insistence and the inevitability of the fluxion of the flows? What can be done so that the decoding and the deterritorialization constitutive of the system do not make it flee through one end or another that would escape the axiomatic and throw the machine into a panic, a Chinese on the horizon, a Cuban missile launcher, an Arab hijacker, a consul kidnapper, a Black Panther, a May 68, or even stoned hippies, angry gays, etc. There is an oscillation between the reactionary paranoiac overcharges and the subterranean, schizophrenic, and revolutionary charges. Moreover, one no longer quite knows how it goes on one side or the other, 
the two ambiguous poles of delirium, their transformations, the way in which an archaism or folklore in a given set of circumstances can suddenly become charged with a dangerous progressive value. How things turn fascist or revolutionary is the problem of the universal delirium about which everyone is silent, first of all and especially the psychiatrists, they have no ideas on the subject why would they? Capitalism, and socialism as well, are as though torn between the despotic signifier that they adore, and the schizophrenic figure that sweeps them along. We are thus entitled to maintain two conclusions that we have already put forward and that seem to stand mutually opposed. On the one hand, the modern state forms a break that represents a genuine advance in comparison with the despotic state, in terms of its fulfillment of a becoming imminent, its generalized decoding of flows, and its axiomatic that comes to replace the codes and overcodings. But on the other hand there has never been but one state, the Ur-state, the Asiatic despotic formation, which constitutes in its shadow existence history's only break, since even the modern social axiomatic can function only by resuscitating it as one of the poles between which it produces its own break. Democracy, fascism, or socialism, which of these is not haunted by the Ur-state as a model without equal? The name of the local dictator Duvalier's chief of police was Dessur. But the events that restore a thing to life are not the same as those that gave rise to it in the first place. We have distinguished among three social machines corresponding to the savage, the barbarian, and the civilized societies. The first is the underlying territorial machine, which consists in coding the flows on the full body of the earth. The second is the transcendent imperial machine, which consists in overcoding the flows on the full body of the despot or his apparatus, the Ur-state, it affects the first great movement of deterritorialization, but does so by adding its eminent unity to the territorial communes that it conserves by bringing them together, overcoding them and appropriating their surplus labor. The third is the modern imminent machine, which consists in decoding the flows on the full body of capital money, it has realized the imminence, it has rendered concrete the abstract as such and has naturalized the artificial, replacing the territorial codes and the despotic overcoding with an axiomatic of decoded flows, and a regulation of these flows, it affects the second great movement of deterritorialization, but this time because it doesn't allow any part of the codes and overcodes to subsist. However, what it doesn't allow to subsist it rediscovers through its own original means, it re-territorializes where it has lost the territorialities, it creates new archaism where it has destroyed the old ones and the two become as one. The historian says no, the modern state, its bureaucracy, and its technocracy, do not resemble the ancient despotic state. Of course not, since it is a matter in the one case of re-territorializing decoded flows, but in the other case of overcoding the territorial flows. The paradox is that capitalism makes use of the Ur state for affecting its re-territorializations. But the imperturbable modern axiomatic, from the depths of its imminence, reproduces the transcendence of the earth state as its internalized limit, or one of the poles between which it is determined to oscillate. And in its imperturbable and cynical existence, it is prey to great forces that form the other pole of the axiomatic, its accidents, its breakdowns, its chances of being blown to pieces, of causing what it decodes to pass beyond the wall of its imminent regulations and beyond its transcendental resurrections.
Each type of social machine produces a particular kind of representation whose elements are organized at the surface of the socius, the system of connotation connection in the savage territorial machine, corresponding to the coding of the flows, the system of subordination disjunction in the barbarian despotic machine, corresponding to overcoding, the system of coordination conjunction in the civilized capitalist machine, corresponding to the decoding of the flows. Deterritorialization, the axiomatic, and reterritorialization are the three surface elements of the representation of desire in the modern socius. So we come back to the question, in each case what is the relationship between social production and desiring production, once it is said that they have identical natures and differing regimes. Could it be that the identity in nature is at its highest point in the order of modern capitalist representation, because this identity is universally realized in the imminence of this order and in the fluxion of the decoded flows. But also that the difference in regime is greatest in the capitalist order of representation, and that this representation subjects desire to an operation of social repression psychic repression that is stronger than any other, because, by means of the imminence and the decoding, anti-production has spread throughout all of production, instead of remaining localized in the system, and has freed a fantastic death instinct that now permeates and crushes desire? And what is this death that always rises from within, but that must arrive from without and that, in the case of capitalism, rises with all the more power as one still fails to see exactly what this outside is that will cause it to arrive? In short, the general theory of society is a generalized theory of flows, it is in terms of the latter that one must consider the relationship of social production to desiring production, the variations of this relationship in each case, and the limits of this relationship in the capitalist system. 11 Oedipus at last. In the territorial or even the despotic machine, social economic reproduction is never independent of human reproduction, of the social form of this reproduction. The family is therefore an open praxis, a strategy that is coextensive with the social field, the relations of filiation and alliance are determinant, or rather determined as dominant. As a matter of fact, what is marked or inscribed on the socius directly is the producers, or non-producers, according to the standing of their family or their standing inside the family. The reproduction process is not directly economic, but passes by way of the non-economic factors of kinship. This is true not only with respect to the territorial machine, and to local groups that determine the place of each member in social economic reproduction, according to one's status from the standpoint of the alliances and the affiliations, but also with respect to the despotic machine, which adds the relations of the new alliance and direct filiation to the old alliance and filiations, whence the role of the sovereign's family in despotic overcoating, and that of the dynasty whatever its mutations, its indecisions which are inscribed under the same category of new alliance. The process by no means remains the same in the capitalist system. Point 97 representation no longer relates to a distinct object, but to productive activity itself. The socius as full body has become directly economic as capital money, it does not tolerate any other preconditions. What is inscribed or marked is no longer the producers or non-producers, but the forces and means of production as abstract quantities that become effectively concrete in their becoming related or their conjunction, labor capacity or capital, constant capital or variable capital, capital of filiation or capital of alliance.
capital has taken upon itself the relations of alliance and filiation. There ensues a privatization of the family according to which the family ceases to give its social form to economic reproduction, it is as though disinvested, placed outside the field, in the language of Aristotle, the family is now simply the form of human matter or material that finds itself subordinated to the autonomous social form of economic reproduction, and that comes to take the place assigned it by the latter. That is to say that the elements of production and anti-production are not reproduced in the same way as humans themselves, but find in them a simple material that the form of economic reproduction pre-organizes in a mode that is entirely distinct from the form this material has as human reproduction. Precisely because it is privatized, placed outside the field, the form of the material or the form of human reproduction begets people whom one can readily assume to be all equal in relation to one another, but inside the field itself, the form of social economic reproduction has already preformed the form of the material so as to engender, there where they are needed, the capitalist as a function derived from capital, and the worker as a function derived from labor capacity, etc., in such a way that the family finds itself countersect by the order of classes. In this sense, indeed, segregation is the only origin of equality. Point 98. This placing of the family outside the social field is also its greatest social fortune. For it is the condition under which the entire social field can be applied to the family. Individual persons are social persons first of all, i.e., functions derived from the abstract quantities, they become concrete in the becoming related or the axiomatic of these quantities, in their conjunction. They are nothing more nor less than configurations or images produced by the points signs, the breaks flows, the pure figures of capitalism, the capitalist as personified capital i.e., as a function derived from the flow of capital, and the worker as personified labor capacity i.e., a function derived from the flow of labor. In this way capitalism fills its field of imminence with images, even destitution, despair, revolt, and on the other side, the violence and the oppression of capital become images of destitution, despair, revolt, violence, or oppression. But starting from non-figurative figures or from the breaks flows that produce them, these images will themselves be capable of figuring and reproducing only by shaping a human material whose specific form of reproduction falls outside the social field that nonetheless determines this form. Private persons are therefore images of the second order, images of images that is, simulacra that are thus endowed with an aptitude for representing the first-order images of social persons. These private persons are formally delimited in the locus of the restricted family as father, mother, child. But instead of being a strategy that, through the action of alliances and filiations, opens onto the entire social field, is coextensive with it, and countersects its coordinates, it would appear that the family is now merely a simple tactic around which the social field recloses, to which it applies its autonomous requirements of reproduction, and that it counteracts with all its dimensions. The alliances and filiations no longer pass through people but through money, so the family becomes a microcosm, suited to expressing what it no longer dominates. In a certain sense the situation has not changed, for what is invested through the family is still the economic, political, and cultural social field, its breaks and flows. Private persons are an illusion, images of images or derivatives of derivatives. 
but in another sense everything has changed, because the family, instead of constituting and developing the dominant factors of social reproduction, is content to apply and envelop these factors in its own mode of reproduction. Father, mother, and child thus become the simulacrum of the images of capital, Mr. Capital, Madam Earth, and their child the worker, with the result that these images are no longer recognized at all in the desire that is determined to invest only their simulacrum. The familial determinations become the application of the social axiomatic. The family becomes the subaggregate to which the whole of the social field is applied. Since each person has his own private father and mother, it is a distributive subaggregate that simulates for each person the collective whole of social persons and that closes off his domain and scrambles his images. Everything is reduced to the father-mother-child triangle, which reverberates the answer daddy-mommy every time it is stimulated by the images of capital. In short, Oedipus arrives, it is born in the capitalist system of the application of first-order social images to the private familial images of the second order. It is the aggregate of destination that corresponds to an aggregate of departure that is socially determined. It is our intimate colonial formation that corresponds to the form of social sovereignty. We are all little colonies and it is Oedipus that colonizes us. When the family ceases to be a unit of production and of reproduction, when the conjunction again finds in the family the meaning of a simple unit of consumption, it is father-mother that we consume. In the aggregate of departure there is the boss, the foreman, the priest, the tax collector, the cop, the soldier, the worker, all the machines and territorialities, all the social images of our society, but in the aggregate of destination, in the end, there is no longer anyone but daddy, mommy, and me, the despotic sign inherited by daddy, the residual territoriality assumed by mommy, and the divided, split, castrated ego. Isn't this operation of flattening, folding, or application what leads Lakin to say, willingly betraying the secret of psychoanalysis as an applied axiomatic, what appears to come most freely into play in what is called the analytic dialogue, in fact depends on a sub-foundation that is perfectly reducible to a few essential and formalizable articulations 99. Everything is preformed, arranged in advance. The social field, where everyone acts and is acted upon, padded, as a collective agent of enunciation, an agent of production and anti-production, is reduced to Oedipus, where everyone now finds himself cornered and cut along the line that divides him into an individual subject of the statement and an individual subject of enunciation. The subject of the statement is the social person, and the subject of enunciation, the private person. So it's your father, so it's your mother, so it's you, the familial conjunction results from the capitalist conjunctions, insofar as they are applied to private persons. Daddy mommy me one is sure to re-encounter them everywhere, since everything has been applied to them. The reign of images is the new way in which capitalism utilizes the schizes and diverts the flows, composite images, images flattened onto other images, so that when this operation reaches its outcome the little ego of each person, related to its father-mother, is truly the center of the world. Much more underhanded than the subterranean reign of the fetishes of the earth, or the celestial reign of the despots' idols, is the advent of the Oedipal narcissistic machine, no more glyphs and hieroglyphs, will have the real objective reality. Our Kodak vision. To every man, to every woman, 
the universe is just a setting to the absolute little picture of himself, herself. A picture. A Kodak snap, in a universal film of snaps 100. Each person as a little triangulated microcosm the narcissistic ego is identical with the Oedipal subject. Oedipus at last, in the end it is a very simple operation, one that indeed readily lends itself to formalization, although it involves universal history. We have seen in what sense schizophrenia was the absolute limit of every society, inasmuch as it sets in motion decoded and deterritorialized flows that it restores to desiring production, at the bounds of all social production. And capitalism, the relative limit of every society, inasmuch as it axiomatizes the decoded flows and re-territorializes the deterritorialized flows. We have also seen that capitalism finds in schizophrenia its own exterior limit, which it is continually repelling and exorcising, while capitalism itself produces its imminent limits, which it never ceases to displace and enlarge. But capitalism still needs a displaced interior limit in another way, precisely in order to neutralize or repel the absolute exterior limit, the schizophrenic limit, it needs to internalize this limit, this time by restricting it, by causing it to pass no longer between social production and the desiring production that breaks away from social reproduction, but inside social production, between the form of social reproduction and the form of a familial reproduction to which social production is reduced, between the social aggregate and the private subaggregate to which the social aggregate is applied. Oedipus is this displaced or internalized limit where desire lets itself be caught. The Oedipal triangle is the personal and private territoriality that corresponds to all of capitalism's efforts at social re-territorialization. Oedipus was always the displaced limit for every social formation, since it is the displaced represented of desire. But in the primitive formations this limit remains vacant, precisely insofar as the flows are coded and as the interplay of alliances and filiations keeps families extended according to the scale of the determinations of the social field, preventing any secondary reduction of the latter to the former. In the despotic formations the Oedipal limit is occupied, symbolically occupied but not lived or inhabited, inasmuch as the imperial incest affects an overcoating that in turn surveys the entire social field from above, the repressing representation the formal operations of flattening, extrapolation, and so on, that later belong to Oedipus, are already sketched out, but within a symbolic space where the object from on high is formed. It is only in the capitalist formation that the Oedipal limit finds itself not only occupied, but inhabited, and lived, in the sense in which the social images produced by the decoded flows actually fall back on restricted familial images invested by desire. It is at this point in the imaginary that Oedipus is constituted, at the same time as it completes its migration in the in-depth elements of representation, the displaced represented has become, as such, the representation of desire. Hence it goes without saying that this becoming or this constitution does not develop under the categories imagined in the earlier social formation, since the imaginary Oedipus results from such a becoming and not the inverse. It is not via a flow of shit or a wave of incest that Oedipus arrives, but via the decoded flows of capital money. The waves of incest and shit are only secondary derivates of the latter, insofar as they transport the private persons to which the flows of capital are reduced or applied. 
which explains the complex origin of the relation that is completely distorted in the psychoanalytic equation, shit equals money, in reality, it is a question of encounters or conjunctions of derivatives and resultants between decoded flows. In Oedipus there is a recapitulation of the three states, or the three machines. For Oedipus makes ready in the territorial machine, as an empty unoccupied limit. It takes form in the despotic machine as a symbolically occupied limit. But it is filled and carried to completion only by becoming the imaginary Oedipus of the capitalist machine. The despotic machine preserved the primitive territorialities, and the capitalist machine resuscitates the Ur state as one of the poles of its axiomatic, it makes the despot into one of its images. That is why Oedipus gathers up everything, everything is found again in Oedipus, which is indeed the result of universal history, but in the singular sense in which capital is already this result. Fetishes, idols, images, and simulacra here we have the whole series, territorial fetishes, despotic idols, or symbols, then everything is recapitulated in the images of capitalism, which shapes and reduces them to the Oedipal simulacrum. The representative of the local group with Leos, the territoriality with Jocasta, the despot with Oedipus himself, a motley painting of everything that has ever been believed. It comes as no surprise that Freud looks to Sophocles for the central image of Oedipus the despot, the myth become tragedy, in order to make the image radiate in two contrary directions, the ritual primitive direction of totem and taboo, and the private direction of modern man the dreamer. Oedipus can be a myth, a tragedy, or a dream, it always expresses the displacement of the limit. Oedipus would be nothing if the symbolic position of an object from on high, in the despotic machine, did not first make possible the folding and flattening operations that will constitute Oedipus in the modern social field, the triangulation's cause. Whence the extreme importance but also the indeterminate nature, the non-decidability of the argument advanced by psychoanalysis's most profound innovator, which makes the displaced limit pass between the symbolic and the imaginary, between symbolic castration and imaginary Oedipus. For castration in the order of the despotic signifier, as the law of the despot or the effect of the object from on high, is in reality the formal condition of the Oedipal images that will be deployed in the field of imminence left uncovered by the withdrawal of the signifier. I reach desire when I arrive at castration. What does the desire castration equation signify, if not in fact a prodigious operation that consists in replacing desire under the law of the despot, in introducing lack there at the deepest levels, and in rescuing us from Oedipus by means of a fantastic regression? A fantastic and brilliant regression, someone had to do it, no one helped me, as Lakin says, to shake loose the yoke of Oedipus and carry it to the point of its autocritique. But it is like the story of the resistance fighters who, wanting to destroy a pylon, balanced the plastic charges so well that the pylon blew up and fell back into its hole. From the symbolic to the imaginary, from castration to Oedipus, and from the despotic age to capitalism, inversely there is the progress leading to the withdrawal of the overseeing and overcoding object from on high which gives way to a social field of imminence where the decoded flows produce images and level them down. Whence the two aspects of the signifier, a barred transcendent signifier taken in a maximum that distributes lack, and an imminent system of relations between minimal elements that come to fill the uncovered field, somewhat similar, in traditional terms, 
to the way one goes from the Parmenidean being to the atoms of Democritus. A transcendent object that is more and more spiritualized, for a field of forces that is more and more imminent, more and more internalized, this describes the evolution of the infinite debt through Catholicism, then the Reformation. The extreme spiritualization of the despotic state, and the extreme internalization of the capitalist field, define bad conscience. The latter is not cynicism's contrary, it is, in private persons, the correlate of the cynicism of social persons. All the cynical tactics of bad conscience, just as Nietzsche and then Lawrence and Miller analyzed them to arrive at a definition of civilized European man, the hypnosis and the reign of images, the torpor they spread, the hatred of life and of all that is free, of all that passes and flows, the universal effusion of the death instinct, depression and guilt used as a means of contagion, the kiss of the vampire, aren't you ashamed to be happy? Follow my example, I won't let go before you say, it's my fault, oh ignoble contagion of the depressives, neurosis as the only illness consisting in making others ill, the permissive structure, let me deceive, rob, slaughter, kill. But in the name of the social order, and so daddy mommy will be proud of me, the double direction given to ressentiment, the turning back against oneself, and the projection against the other, the father is dead, it's my fault, who killed him? It's your fault, it's the Jews, the Arabs, the Chinese, all the resources of racism and segregation. The abject desire to be loved, the whimpering at not being loved enough, at not being understood, concurrent with the reduction of sexuality to the dirty little secret, this whole priest's psychology there is not a single one of these tactics that does not find in Oedipus its land of milk and honey, its good provider. Nor is there a single one of these tactics that does not serve and develop in psychoanalysis, with the latter as the new avatar of the ascetic ideal. Once again, psychoanalysis does not invent Oedipus, it merely provides the latter a last territoriality, the couch, and a last law, the analyst as despot and money collector. But the mother as the simulacrum of territoriality, and the father as the simulacrum of the despotic law, with the slashed, split, castrated ego, are the products of capitalism insofar as it engineers an operation that has no equivalent in the other social formations. Everywhere else the familial position is merely a stimulus to the investment of the social field by desire, the familial images function only by opening onto social images to which they become coupled or which they confront in the course of struggles and compromises, so that what is invested through the breaks and segments of families is the economic, political, and cultural breaks of the field into which they are plunged, cf. endembu schizophrenia. This is the case even in the peripheral zones of capitalism, where the colonizers' efforts at Oedipalizing the indigenous population African Oedipus find themselves contradicted by the breakup of the family along the lines of social exploitation and oppression. But it is at the soft center of capitalism, in the temperate zones of the bourgeoisie, that the colony becomes intimate and private, interior to each person, it is there that the flow of the investment of desire, which travels from the familial stimulus to the social organization, or disorganization, is as it were covered over by a reflux that flattens the social investment onto the familial investment serving as a pseudo-organizer. The family has become the locus of retention and resonance of all the social determinations. 
it falls to the reactionary investment of the capitalist field to apply all the social images to the simulcra of the restricted family, with the result that, wherever one turns, one no longer finds anything but father-mother this edible filth that sticks to our skin. Yes, I desired my mother and wanted to kill my father, a single subject of enunciation Oedipus for all the capitalist statements, and between the two, the leveling cleavage of castration. Marx said that Luther's merit was to have determined the essence of religion, no longer on the side of the object, but as an interior religiosity, that the merit of Adam Smith and Ricardo was to have determined the essence or nature of wealth no longer as an objective nature, but as an abstract and deterritorialized subjective essence, the activity of production in general. But as this determination develops under the condition of capitalism, they objectify the essence all over again, they alienate and re-territorialize it, this time in the form of the private ownership of the means of production. So that capitalism is without doubt the universal of every society, but only insofar as it is capable of carrying to a certain point its own critique that is, the critique of the processes by which it re-enslaves what within it tends to free itself or to appear freely. Point one oh one. The same thing must be said of Freud, his greatness lies in having determined the essence or nature of desire, no longer in relation to objects, aims, or even sources, territories, but as an abstract subjective essence libido. Or sexuality.